0: Welcome to the Ides of Macro, where we discuss investing and trading through the lens of global macroeconomics. Julian Brigdon, welcome to the, to the Ides of Macro, just as you're drinking it there, the second episode that we've done and, uh, and where, we, where we talk about everything macro. So uh, welcome on board.
1: Thank you, Roger. Thanks for having me, mate. Sorry about that. You were much quicker than I thought you'd be.
0: There's a count- five countdown. It's not a hard one. Uh, so yeah. I just want to I I get straight into this because, um, I mean, it's been a fascinating market of the last really 18 months where it feels like we're kind of edging, being dragged towards this sort of recessionary type concept. But yet there are still certain elements which are stubbornly holding on to not being recessionary. Where, what, what are your thoughts here? Do you, I mean, do you think we will naturally go into a recession? Or do you think that the Fed has to still manufacture and still has to do a little bit more work because it feels like the fed considers a recession versus inflation it considers recession the lesser of those two evils and therefore it will make sure that it's done its job on on inflation before it worries about growth and recession what's your feeling where do you think we are
1: so i think look i think you're you're right in terms of waiting where the feds thought processes in their head is i think in many respects the soft landing spin was simply kabuki theater, right? It was expedient, politically orientated kabuki theater aimed at obfuscating the reality is that the way that you break the back of inflation is you drive the economy into recession. So I think that that was always the plan. I think one of the things that that we've been thinking about um, is that this sort of concept of soft landing, no landing, thing Roger was purely and utterly a reflection that people forgot that you know monetary policy works with a lag and the reality of the situation is we're only just feeling the impacts of the first few rate hikes and this thing is going to come and hit people with a pretty big whack I think as we move through the year we've just done a a series for the for the MI2 client base where we've looked at sort of three areas uh, of the economy Uh, the first one was credit and that was even before SVB and all the events and the sort of fallout in the regional bank crisis and even then and it's an incredibly good sort of leading indicator when you looked at the credit cycle you were starting to see really starting in 2021 but it just works with such a long lead as soon as the Fed started to tighten rates banks started to tighten lending standards that's been met with interestingly falling credit demand particularly from the corporate sector that's going to manifest itself in things like uh, CapEx, C&I lending, so commercial and industrial lending. Uh, it's going to manifest itself in consumer spending. You could already see the consumer credit numbers, which are running around $40 billion a month, have dropped material, and I think it could go negative. That's going to come through and hit retail sales and ultimately uh, employment. And employment's kind of the last lagging kind of indicator but I think there the dynamics are starting to move so there's there's credit now SVB and events there seems to have materially accelerated that roger and while there isn't that much up-to-date data which kind of encapsulates that there's a couple of series that we've been looking at which if they're right and I you know cautious in inverted commas suggest potentially a credit tightening which is not that far off the worst in 30 years outside the GFC. So that's very bad. Second issue is one around uh, the housing market and the construction story. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this is 08-09 once again, but we've got an extraordinary unattractive housing market at the moment, in the sense that houses are very expensive. We're just about to get uh, higher unemployment. And hitting that is an almost unprecedented number of new houses that are under construction. And if you look at the multifamily space, a, uh, a very large, a very unattractive from a funding perspective, cap, cap rates, et etc. et cetera backdrop. So I think we're looking at a big slowdown in construction activity, right? And then the third one is uh, the inventory cycle. Now, we sort of thought we'd banish the inventory cycle, right? That was a thing of, you know, pre what what we refer to in economic terms as the great moderation. So this sort of pre the globalization, which you started in the mid 80s, which enabled you to move to just in time inventory management. So you didn't have to have these big levels of inventories. And I think we've gone back to a pre 1985 way where, we moved during COVID, we overordered. We That moves us to just in case. And that's fine, but it comes with a cost. It comes with the volatility of, oh, shit, I've got way too many inventories. Let me cut my production as the sales starts to go. And I think we could end up with a very vicious inventory cycle. So I think we've got a bit of a trifecta here, Roger. And I think the odds are growing that we're looking at, or caveat it again, a good old-fashioned hard landing and by that i mean not a 2008 2009 type credit crisis but just a good nasty ugly recession
0: and i think you know it's what you're saying there is interesting because the way i, I looked at this has always been last year was a price shock um and we were waiting for the growth shock to come through and, and there's this transition window right where everything would look okay which is what we've had and then that slap across the face was what we saw with the banks So I think we're in. We now have the slap. We're now going into, you know, we can now have a growth shock because for a few months, we all thought everything was going to be tickety boo. But on that recession. And I think as
1: well, we've got to just if I may, just one observation. I mean, I think because you make it you raise an interesting point, inflation and let's call it nominal GDP tends to obfuscate what's going on because it just that that cash just sort of. in in nominal terms fills the gap so i think you know if you looked at the classic one i like to quote is procter and gamble just came out and announced i think it was like a six or seven percent increase in profits now that was on the back of a 10 percent increase in pricing which means that their volumes fell three to four percent now that's fine because that's come you know corporate profits are calculated on a nominal basis but the problem is is the economy Works on a real or unit basis, so it's fine that Procter and Gamble said, "Well, our numbers are up six or seven percent." The equity market goes, "Woohoo, great!" But it isn't sustainable if that's pushed across the whole economy, because. Procter and Gamble are cutting production. They're not selling as many units by three to four percent. So you push that across the economy and all of a sudden you've got three to four percent less industrial production, three to four percent less transport, three to four percent less employment. And we know that we hit this tipping point. So I'm exactly in your camp that we're in this kind of foggy land where it all kinda looks okay, but if you actually lift the lid it bloody is beginning to stink.
0: And what actually just Cutting on that point there, because one thing I think you've been one of the advocates for this as well, which is and you were just mentioning it there, which is that one of the big problems we've had is that the pricing power of corporates has created this sticky inflation. That, and this is why, why the Fed might need to go harder, because the Fed needs to basically go, come on, lads, come on, girls. You can't keep putting up these prices when your volumes are falling just to keep your margins where they are. If you keep doing that, we're going to get sticky inflation. So we're going to have to hit you. It feels like that that kind of corporate led inflation is the reason why the Fed might still have to surprise with more tightening.
1: Yeah, there was a brilliant chart, which uh, John Arthur did on Bloomberg today, where he showed the share of corporate corporate share of GDP is now as high as 1929. I mean, I, you know, this is something that I've maintained, right? If you in a in what is actually a pretty uncompetitive economy in many respects in the United States, right? Every, in oligopolistic from everything from, as we found out, slaughterhouses through uh, Internet providers, through purchasing of white goods, right, where you have to stick to the MSRP, this is actually a bloody uncompetitive economy. Um, And when you give that degree of pricing power and oligopolistic power to the corporate sector and you push up their costs, but at the same time you give consumers, you know, a big check to enable them to pay that cost, guess what's going to happen, Roger? The US corporate sector is gonna stick its hand in your pocket To the point that it extracts every single last red cent and more so if you're if you're the fed the only solution basically and this is why we've maintained this is you have to crush demand because you're never going to moral suasion is never going to work on the corporate sector right you're going to have to crush demand to the point that the u.s corporate sector cannot pass those price increases through and i think look I, i think that's all was always the intention what i think is different now Roger is. The intention, as I said, was never a, a, a no landing, right? I, that sort of soft landing scenario just never made sense to me. The intention always was a recession. In fact, if you look at the Fed's forecast, there was a glaring inconsistency uh, in that. They had this sort of, their SCPs, the published forecasts that they put out for the economy. They had this sort of bizarre 1% rise in unemployment, which would then track sideways for three years. And yet, no recession. I mean, decidedly Goldilocks, right? And inflation would fall the whole time. The trouble is, it's never occurred in the post-war period. You've never had a 1% increase in unemployment without a recession. And you've never, inflation, as unemployment never really tracks sideways. Once it starts to rise, it goes up. So I've always, to be honest, thought that was a bit of BS Uh, on their behalf. And as I said, a bit of political expediency to cover their asses, so they don't want to get the blame because they don't want to get too many of those sessions like they had with Elizabeth Warren where she correctly nailed them. Um, So I think the the intention was always a recession. But I think now, given what we're starting to see, I think actually the odds are it's an uglier recession than they intended.
0: And do you think that... um they still need to tighten a bit more or do you think now they can go, okay, we can can reset a little bit or at least pause? Because you know, one, one thing we've you know, you've talked about in terms of yield curves, et cetera, which is this whole you know, yield curve, inverts, goes negative, then it starts to re-steep and then you get a recession, which is always true in the moderation period in 1990. But if you go into the 70s, mm-hmm. They keep tightening, keep tightening, so that actually the, the inversion keeps on going until the steepest point is at the recession, which makes sense because they have to go. We've got to tighten and we kill until we kill something. The back end eventually works out, you know, and those yields fall relative to that front end. So it does that. And then, yes, it re steepens through the recession. But you have these very, very volatile yield curves. And even now, I think, was it three month, 10 year? Because obviously, three month is locked to to the Fed funds. Yep, yep. That's actually now at a record—not record low, but it's still it's still moving to new lows relative to the cycle, which makes sense if they still have to keep tightening.
1: So, look, do they manage to eke another twenty five out in May? Maybe, maybe. Uh, I think a lot will depend, you know, on the timing of the data. I mean, it's quite unusual, Roger. I mean, you know, to get. Typically, when ISM manufacturing, which is what the kind of leading indicators, you know, you know, this, you know, as a as a as a macro uh, specialist, I mean, manufacturing is a tiny proportion of the economy, but it tends to be the more the leading indicator. And it's very unusual for the Fed to be hiking once you start to cross sort of forty nine and a half on ISM manufacturing and we're well below that. Right. You know, I love listening to the conference call of. uh, that they do after this, and Tim Fiore, who's the current chairman of the ISO Manufacturing Survey, the change in tone this month was really, really noticeable, really, really noticeable. So it's quite unusual for the Fed to do that. So I think they're kind of pile driving us into recession. And I think, as I said, that was kind of the intention. So when it comes to the curve, the problem, you know, we're moving into the, we've moved into the sort of steepening camp. Now the question is, is where, right? threes, tens, you know, three months, 10 years, sorry, two year, 10 year, two year, 30 year, five year, 30 year. And I think one of the things that I've uh, been fortunate enough to pick up because some of my sort of connections with my old policy side is exactly where the Fed's head was in terms or is in terms of this policy tightening. So when you get inflation of this sort of magnitude, there's really only sort of two policy options. You can pursue... Uh, what's referred to as deliberate disinflation. So this is sort of Volcker-esque, you literally drive the economy into recession, you deliberately kill the patient, or you can pursue what is referred to as opportunistic disinflation. Now opportunistic disinflation doesn't necessarily mean you remove the risk of the client's debt, it doesn't mean you remove the risk of a recession, but you don't really drive your knife into the patient's heart. Right. What you do is you is you sort of suppress the patient to the point that you can take advantage opportunistically of other events that may occur. You would like a nice event to occur. You would like, you know, some sort of exogenous event to come along and either drive productivity up materially, which would, you know, would remove some of that uh, inflationary pressure. Or you'd like um, you know some new invention to come along whatever it is to kind of that doesn't require the pain but it doesn't preclude the pain but the problem is is when you pursue a opportunistically disinflationary policy which was the last time we tried it was in the mid 90s under Greenspan it takes a bloody long time Roger to potentially out because you're waiting for the events and you know it's like waiting for a bloody bus in London right you might wait for an hour And then all three come along at once right so when you look at that situation what does that mean basically what it means is that policy essentially becomes asymmetric so you wait and embrace the weakness and policy doesn't get eased which i think could become a problem for the market in terms of what it's been pricing in at the very very front end so let's say for this year you kind of wait you go Okay, it's weak, that's what I wanted, no, 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 right? But what you do is you raise rates again if the data is strong. And that's what we've seen over the last, you know, since the start of this year, right? The data's coming much stronger, they've kept going, okay? Now, because they are going to potentially sit on the sidelines and embrace that weakness for longer than expected, I'm a little bit hesitant when it comes to the curve, to place my bets too close to the front end, right? I'm not playing in three months. I'm not playing in one year. I'm not even playing in two year, although I suspect by two years, things will have really materially deteriorated. My bets right here, right now are in, I'm doing the five thirties curve. So I'm betting that five year yields are going to fall because if two years are kind of fixed, you'll get all the flex kind of here and that five year yields will start to fall materially um, and that you'll get a bull steepener as that pivots like that five year yields drop and 30 years kind of stay where they are.
0: And, that, and that's because um, for so people watching it, sort of two year is really a sort of a, uh, a sense of where the Fed should be. It's kind of an emotional um, kind of view on the, the Fed. 30 years, a little bit more inflation sensitivity and that sort of five and 10 year space is a little bit optimism, pessimism. So if you're going into the pessimism recession, five and yep. seven year yields should fall. Uh, 30 year but if, yes. they, if they cut too quickly or the, everyone thinks they cut too quickly then 30 year might be sticking go up because people go ooh, inflation could come back Correct. down the
1: road and and that's, that that's you know this is this, you raise an important point Roger right because i a lot of people have said to me why don't you just go and buy 5 year bonds right and don't get me wrong from a most of the listeners to this well, it's very bloody hard to go and do some sort of steep in a trade you know and balance it all out Right? Like what you really just want to go is go and buy bonds right and ral's talked about this quite a lot on macro insiders um so i'm i you know flagged that i was looking at levels on the uh, ief technical levels uh, on the bollock and i you know I'm, I'm long that sector myself so but the problem becomes that longer dated area and why do I prefer a steepen as opposed to an outright long or why do I prefer an outright long in shorter when I should really if I want most bang for my buck going really really long to get that duration kicker and the reason is is I'm a little concerned about the long end Roger I'm actually worried that what the regional banking crisis has illustrated to us is the inability potentially for the fed to raise rates sufficiently to choke inflation out of the system so if you want to get all kind of technical and a bit sort of eco economistic wonky we have just discovered that our double star is below our star so the level of of rates that's commensurate with a stable financial system is below the level of rates that's commensurate with a stable economy and if that is the case Roger and this is ultimately where I Raoul and I disagree I am very concerned about the ability of the Fed to truly wring inflation out of the system don't get me wrong it will fall in a recession but to what level right will it go back to the prior lows or are we looking at a situation like the 60s and 70s where it rolls but every time you get a higher low And then you kick off again. I'm also quite concerned that if we go into 2024, at the end of this year, and we're in a pretty ugly recession. I really wouldn't put it in fact to be my base case that Congress will be looking to spend even more money. And I that's kind of what happened in the 60s and 70s and kept the inflation cycle going. And that's what worries me. So I I like the idea of a steepener because I get that bull steepener, that recessionary kind of move. But I also cover my ass just in case things go very wrong fiscally and monetarily. And the long end of the bond market goes, uh, I I don't I don't like this. I don't like the I don't trust the Fed's ability to wring inflation out of the system.
0: And so it sounds like what you're thinking the Fed is probably going to do is And I think you alluded to the market getting a little bit overexcited because the market keeps going for this pivot. It goes up straight back down again. Yeah. But, and, and and actually what's happened is that if that's that pivot, that pivot has just moved from from February through the middle of the year towards the end of the year. So actually it's been a plateau. And I think it sounds like the Fed may well plateau, which is what you talked about in the 1990s, where they, they get up to five percent and then they sort of hold it there or thereabouts. And at the same time, I guess the other thing is you mentioned, which which is and they will be a, bit, a little bit more reactive because we've been so used to the last 30 years of rates go up rates go down yep. rates go up at the same amount every time but prior to 1990 they go up they go down they go up a lot more they go down so it sounds like they might go plateau and then see which way as as and when the data comes out
1: yeah and i think i think this is you know you you know, we have got so used to this, as you said, this sort of post 0809 world, where you know the Fed is your friend, right? They always come to your rescue. You know, weakness is a source of joy, right? Because you go and buy stocks because they're going to print more money or ease rates or whatever. And I and I think there's a possibility that we're just not in that world anymore. And in fact, I distinctly believe we're not in that world anymore. Um, so I'm I'm and I'm a little reticent about you know buying stocks. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I think. You know this recent bounce we've had in the equity market is a function of the fact that the fed's been realistically compromised on their on their objectives right they're trying to do qt and yet they've had to re-expand the balance sheet to help the banks out and uh, i think that's um i think that's that's fine but the the and i do believe that asset prices are set by liquidity as opposed to fundamentals right i mean i hate to say it you know this is it served me well I, i don't think we're in a real world anymore we just print shitloads of money and assets go up and you go oh look great it's a bull market and then you know a whole bunch of analysts and journalists write a narrative that fits the price action as opposed to actually do any of the work um but i i think um I think the risks are growing. I think the risks are growing, in particular, to the U.S. equity market on a relative basis. And I just don't think people appreciate how tied this whole game is. Right? We look at this and we go, "Oh, the Nasdaq's up." Right? Well, I mean, at the first start of this year, we wrote, you know, a whole. We showed sent a bunch of charts to our clients saying, "You noticing we're breaking decade-long relative performance charts?" of the US equity market against pretty much everything. And I think, to me, that's where that's the most exciting thing, Roger. If I look at the macro space, this kind of dominance of the US that's occurred really since 2009, um, but accelerating as the dollar moved up in 2011 and then again in 2014, I think could be coming to an end. If that's the case, then you and I know that once you change the direction of the dollar, the whole macro world changes and the opportunities are enormous. Are we there yet? But, you know,
0: kind of looking good. And with that, um, because you talked about the types of ways you can have a recession that's good or the the asset reaction, the good and the bad. I always think, I've always felt that when you get the change in leadership, you really get the proper change in leadership as the phoenix rising from the ashes. It's the change of direction after the event. Do you think that this is an event where It's going to be so concentrated in the U.S. that with a global recessionary type environment, the U.S. will underperform on the way down. Or do you think there will be some flight to safety? But then when we eventually get through the recession, it's okay. now we reset and we go Europe or we go emerging markets. Or do you just think the U.S. loses out in both the down and the up?
1: So typically when you've gone into sort of prior recession, so you go into, say, 2000 or even sort of 2007, 2007 is a little late was a little unique because you had that collapse in the US banking sector, which sort of sucked dollars back into the system from the rest of the world. But if you go back into sort of 2000, um, the first thing is that the reason I think the dollar rose into the recession was that, you know, there was a lot of money that overseas still, right? We'd been pushing money into emerging markets into the emerging market bubble in 87, 97, 98. Um, and uh, that money was still sort of coming back, even as we were talking uh, in uh, 2000. And then the dollar—you did get a little bit of that risk-off dollar up move, uh, kind of the Napalm run. But I think, uh, and then eventually, as the as the Fed started to cut, then the dollar turned around, and you got that kind of nice, what you're talking about, Roger, that sort of reflationary dollar move. And that's that's why from 2002 to 2008 pretty much everything else that wasn't in the US outperformed, right, in in dollar terms. This time, I think it's a little different. Now, I thought the dollar, I'll be honest with you, I thought the dollar was going to turn at the end of last year. No, sorry, at the beginning, end of 2021. And then we got Ukraine. And Ukraine kind of sucked that final ounce of money that uh into the u.s but i think the point is right here right now all the world's money is in the u.s roger i really think it's in the u.s i think we have had this self-reinforcing virtuous market and economic cycle which have you and i have seen on numerous occasions in our career Uh, you know, for example, we saw in Australia from 2009 to sort of 2011, where it truly is in the sore sense of the word becomes reflexive. So it becomes self-generating, self-reinforcing. So, you know, the dollar starts to go up in 2011. Foreigners want to own dollars because the dollar is going up. They buy dollars. They then look for something to invest them in. So they buy US stocks, which outperform, or they buy... US corporate debt, which the corporates then take the money and buy US stocks, so those outperform. So the circle goes up. As the US stock market's going up, the wealth effect kicks off here in the US, the consumer booms, the Fed raises rates, the dollar goes up even more, the booming economy sucks in lots of imports, we run a big current account deficit, and we ha- and Johnny Foreigner is more than happy to fund it for us, Via buying more US assets. Well, we've been doing that now for the best part of 12 years, and all the bloody money is here. And it looks like an impenetrable edifice, right? It looks bulletproof, Roger, right? It's always self reinforcing. But it is at its core the very definition of an unstable, stable equilibrium, right? With three codependent legs the first one being well the dollar has to remain strong okay because it all that money that's sitting in the u.s has it has to be unhedged from foreigners that's how we fund the current account deficit so the dollar has to remain strong the u.s has to continue to relatively outperform otherwise at some point mrs watanabe or mrs schmidt in germany are going to look at their statement and go oh in yen or Euro terms. I haven't done very well on my NASDAQ this year. Let me go and sell it and go and buy something back home. And thirdly, the US has got to continue to need that money to fund that current account deficit, which means that the economy has got to remain strong, because if we go into recession, that current account deficit will shrink. And with that, the need, our need for foreign money will dissipate and that money will go home. So I kind of look at the dynamics and... If we go in sort of reverse order, we're definitely going into recession. The current account deficit is definitely shrinking. If you look at the relative performance of US equities, they're starting to underperform in foreign currency terms quite materially since the start of the year. Um not everywhere, but certainly against Europe, which is, you know, a big part of the funder of this. And that really only leaves the dollar. And I think we're at an interesting point where either the Fed is potentially compromised on their ability to fight inflation which is dollar negative or secondly they may just have misunderstood how bad the recession is going to be and they're going to have to cut rates a lot more than they think in which case the dollar is potentially compromised so i think it's it's a really really interesting point right here right now
0: and do you think that you know, there's a lot of people who will look at this and go, Yes, I agree on, on the NASDAQ because I think what the breadth of the NASDAQ is, is the worst it's ever been in terms of the overall performance coming from seven stocks. But would people, you know, maybe people go, yeah. Well, actually, what I really want to do here is switch out to those, the NASDAQ, those seven stocks and into those big international US stocks that are kind of, you know, more um, value plays, more commodity plays, more kind of, you know, real world plays, which there's still quite a lot in the US because they've been lagging the tech stocks as in the same way that everyone's been lagging the US. God. So it's the first is the first yeah. move tech, out of tech, out of Nasdaq into that the, the rest of the S&P, maybe for the next year. And then in a year's time, it's like, oh, now Europe. because I think of Europe and I'm amazed where the DAX is. It's near its all time highs. I'm going, oh, you know, it's major. It's major. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that shouldn't be there either. Europe. You know, I, I, I get why some no. the drug, the dregs of Europe of old might start to outperform. But. When I look at the DAX, I go, oh, my God, it's major export partner is China and everything leading into China. And China's not doing anything at the moment and is changing the way it does things. So actually, I I might go, you know, I'll do S&P global stocks first out of tech rather than Europe. I mean, maybe that takes a while to play out.
1: Here's here's the problem, Roger. You, You illustrate a really big conundrum. It's like that curve steepener thing, right? For non pros, this is actually a very, very difficult time because what you're essentially playing is you're talking about a relative trade. You're talking about the US underperforming and on a relative basis, you know, uh, Europe outperforming. Or you're talking about US tech underperforming and US growth outperforming. And they're really kind of manifestations of the same thing. The problem is is that relative trade can happen what we would refer to as the nice way or the nasty way, right? And the nice way is, sure, you go and, um, you go and buy a bunch of European stocks or you go buy a bunch of growth and it goes up and uh, the U.S. goes flat and U.S. tech goes flat. However, there is the nasty way, Roger. And certainly, is when you go into a recession, the odds are that it's the nasty way that kind of prevails, at least initially. And that means that, yeah, sure, you go and buy a bunch of growth, or you go and buy a bunch of European stocks, but they go down. It's just that they go down less than, uh, sorry, than U, so U.S. value. They go just down less than U.S. growth, U.S. tech. And the U.S. market in general, and that means it's actually quite a bit of a difficult trade to run. And so we, you know, when I look at our approach with macro insiders, one of the things that we've really endeavoured to do is try to explain to people: look, you know, I like owning gold. Right? I like owning silver. I like owning XME, the minings and metal stocks. There's some other stuff that I kind of like, right? Mm-hmm. But there are going to come points where I become nervous. And in that situation, what do I want to do? I kind of want to sell some S&P against it or something in the US because I want to have that buffer of that relative trade. I mean, it's, it's just hard to do when you're trying to invest yeah. in your 401k with Vanguard because they won't let you go
0: short. <laughs> well, anything, right? I, mean, I, I was about to say, because it sounds like, you know, the, the equity market is a bleeding minefield because you you've got to get the relative trade yep. on. You might you might get the right relative place, but you might still be down 20%. So you mentioned there, that, I mean, there's yep. other things you can look at. So you can look at the metals. I mean, gold, everyone's been focused on. It's probably got a little bit beyond itself um, over the last yeah, week or so. But, yep. but it looks great. I mean, God, if it can break 2050 properly, fantastic. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I really, like, I really like at this point, you look at some of the miners, right? Some mm, of the mi- if you look at where yeah. gold and silver have moved the underlying metals, the miners are beginning to look a little stretched. So yeah. yes, I concur that short term both the metals look a little toppy. But if we can make that break, I, I you know, or on weakness, I'd be tempted to buy more the miners myself. But you know,
0: and do you, and maybe do you that's think just
1: because I'm just a bit of a spiv.
0: Yeah, I think you are actually. Because I mean, I'm just wondering here if we're going into recession. <laughs> um, if we're going, if we're going into recession, um, you know, it's one of these things where you know, timing, as always, but. It feels like, you know, we're having commodity prices going up because of liquidity stories and structural supply, lack of investment issues. So this is not the 2000s where prices went up because of demand and volume was huge, volume growth was huge. So commodities went up, but commodity miners and producers went up even more because it was a volume and price story. Today it's a little bit seems to be a bit more of a price story and less of a volume. And if we go into recession you know, I wouldn't want to be long miners in a recession because they have such a high beta. Maybe, maybe just about some of the energy stocks. But isn't this case of we should be long the metals first? So you're gold and silver. Yeah, I was talking
1: very specific. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I was talking very specifically the sort of precious metal miners. I I think it's the wrong time probably to be in, you know, one of our long term trades is is long XME, uh, short S&P, right? And that's one of our sort of favorite trades. But we it off and we're waiting to get back uh, into the trade having had a nice little run on that and uh, to exactly that point if you're going into recession the industrial stuff is not the stuff that you're wanting to play essentially what you are really playing roger is you're playing a negative dollar trade right and if you want a high beta trade to that a very you know sensitive trade to that what you're looking at is precious metals you know the fur you know gold obviously first then silver and then if you want a really leveraged balls to the wall trade then you're doing you know silver uh, miners right so that's kind of what and i agree the timing is absolutely key it's all critical but, and you don't put your life savings in this, please, ladies and gentlemen, right? It's, this is a big, aggressive part. But it's like, you know, essentially being long Bitcoin, I guess. You know, it's yeah. the same sort of thing. It's a high beta trade that should respond well to a negative negative, to a negative dollar. But actually, I was funny. As we're chatting, I'm looking at the Invesco um, Agricultural uh, Index, uh, DBA. As I look at that now, actually, it looks, it looks quite bloody good, actually. I mean, it's been stuck in a... In a range, um, and that's also a quite a big uh, anti-dollar trade. So I, you know, I, I think, to me, right here, right now, I have some long precious metals on. We, you know, we have some long precious metals on. We have sh- we short dollar yen, but I haven't yet pushed hard into the. This is the top on the dollar. This thing is going. Because if we get, I'm playing with that thesis, Roger, but if it happens, you and I know mate. I mean, Raul has always, you know, his favorite expression is you go and buy emerging markets, you go and buy um, uh, precious metals and you go and li- lie on the beach for the next five years, right?
0: Yeah. And and with those, I mean, it, what I think is really interesting at this time is, that again, not like the 2000s, it's not a case of, by all emerging markets even though you know the dollar trade obviously has always worked it feels like this is a world because of issues with energy etc more differentiated there will be clear winners and losers within the within the emerging market space whereas 2000s was oh just close close your eyes and fingers in the ear and buy all emerging markets and they all went up but this feels slightly different today
1: i i would i would concur and i'd also add that i think this the the geopolitics has shifted right i mean i think part of the problems with the em as an index is it's got such a high weighting of china and i've i've always been in the camp that i well not always but you know over the last few years we've come increasingly to say to clients you know you're going to need to buy what you're allowed to buy not what you want to buy you know i'm firmly in the camp and i've said this to the crypto community it's not that i don't think it's a decent trade i think or else, purchase of of Bitcoin off the lows of 12,000 was was masterfully timed Um, I get concerned that if we're moving into the geopolitical world which I think we are you know US investors or European investors are going to increasingly have to focus on what they're able to buy. And I'm not sure, you can see it's pretty hard already to get your money into the crypto space, right? And certainly to get it out, right? It's, a, it's increasingly an isolated vacuum kind of community. But I think when it comes to EM, you've got to be cognizant that you may not be allowed to hold Chinese equities in three or four years' time. So, you know, if you're looking at long-term capital gains, I think you really got to be cognizant about what you do buy. Roger.
0: I suppose there's, there's a little danger there. Well,
1: yeah, it's, it should be good.
0: I mean, one of the dangers with that, though, is it could be that all the American investors go, oh, you know what? I'll just bring my money back to the U.S. <laughs> and up goes the Nasdaq again, because the they, on is, the they haven't got
1: they haven't got them. Yeah, it, it's true. But their money's not here. It's not overseas. I mean, it, this is one of my you know, if you go and ask the average registered investor advisor, right, you know what the portfolio is of his client base. Then on paper, it should be, uh, in the equity pool, it should be 65-35. 65 domestic, 35 overseas. It's not even close, mate. It's not even close. My guess is it's probably, and, and this is based on conversations that I've had with, with um, uh, registered investment advisors, it's probably 90-10, 95-5 domestic. Americans have no money. I mean, you'd have been a bloody muppet to have money overseas. Right. This is the point you've made the last decade. I mean, I was looking at this. If you'd have been an American investor uh, and you'd have put money into the IBEX, so the, so the Spanish equity market it, at the, uh, in 2011, so at the dollar lows, how much would you be up? Oh, no, in 2009. How much would you be up, Roger? Take a guess.
0: I don't know. But it's, I'm, <laughs> no, I've got no idea. I, I, I forgot the ibex even existed. Twenty percent,
1: mate. 20 percent. Twenty percent. If you'd have been in the Nasdaq, you'd have, you'd have been up thousands of percent, yeah. right? So the point is, is that's my point. We are at this point where all the money is here, and to me, going forward, it's that flow of funds driven by the fundamentals. Right? It's that flow of funds that is going to be the most important dynamic to get right for 20 2023, right? And, you know, maybe that was the same case for 2022. It's just that, and it looked pretty dodgy in 2022. It's just Ukraine came along and that last ounce of money that was sitting anywhere else in the rest of the world went, shit, I'm going to the US, it's safe there, right?
0: And then in terms of this time, sort of just kind of coming back to it, because, you know, obviously timing a recession um well not timing a recession we all get overly excited about recessions i always think i think there's some great opportunities to go be long and short never you know but at the end of the day you know it's we all get our stars and stripes all the rest of it from going oh i nailed the recession but the you know, with recessions you mentioned it earlier um when you get a recession you always have rising unemployment sometimes rising unemployment leads to the recession or recessions lead to rising unemployment they're coincident but that's what matters and yet here we are with um we've got this Bizarre sort of conundrum because, you know, because of Covid, we've got so many distortions to the data anyway. We don't know whether the data is right, wrong, whether it's all changed. But the unemployment is and I say that unemployment is tight, but the employment situation is not strong, even though at 3.5 percent. It's because, you know, I I don't think Labour has much power at the moment, but there is a low unemployment. How can people So, of what, what should people be looking at? Because if it's the unemployment picking up that tells us we're in a recession and, and we always get lows in the equity market in recession every single time since the war, because as unemployment goes up, people panic and they start liquidating assets because they have to because they've lost their jobs. How, did, how, to, can, right? we, how, yeah. how can we how can we monitor that? How, what, what can we look at to go? Oh, I can see unemployment. So I. Up. Yeah.
1: So, so I think, there are, I mean, you're basically asking, what are the size of the recession? I mean, I, there's a couple of things that I watch. Um, one of the ones that I push to people is, historically, once uh, ISM manufacturing new orders drop below 47.2, unless the Fed punts the cycle, so re-eases, that's a recessionary sign. Well, we've been there since November. It's not an immediate recessionary sign, but it it's pretty much guarantees it delivers you a recession. Uh, Another one you can watch is you can look at the rate of change of continued claims. Um, Once that starts to clip about 10% year over year, you're either in the recession or you're a quarter away from the recession. There's one exception, but the Fed, once again, was already easing into that. And so when I look at things, and that's, that's, um, you know, the interesting thing, Roger, is, is Recessions are or employment is kind of a momentum game. Right. If you look at a chart, you know, if you go back and you look at a long, long, long term chart of unemployment it kind of looks like, you know, a a, mount, a Swiss mountain range, a piece of Toblerone, right? Very, very sharp tops. And then, kind of these extended rally valleys that sort of base out and then slowly start to rise now, once you start to rise and you lose that momentum, they don 't go sideways per the fed's fictitious uh, economic forecasts of four point five four point six percent for the next three three years. they rise again, and it it really is a momentum game, so I like looking at the Momentum in employment, and the momentum in employment is starting to to wane. I mean, you know, whether it's now that we have the recession or not, you know, is kind of fictitious, you know, immaterial because it's when, you know, then we get told in hindsight, right, where the economic forecasters come back and say, oh, you started the recession in in January, and you're like, oh, cheers, thanks. I thought you, I thought that was the case, right? And it doesn't really matter. So, uh, yeah.
0: But you can see with um, with those with both initial jobless claims and the unemployment absolute numbers, you're right, they, they need to start turning up. And they're not even starting turning up yet. Now, again, is this because we're going to suddenly find they're all revised to buggery in the next few months? So we look back and, yes, shit, we're already in a recession. But they haven't really started turning yet. I mean, where's this unemployment? I think they have.
1: I think they have. But I will concur with you. We are not yet in the... Particularly aggressive layoff phase. I think what we're doing is the number of jobs that's being created is starting to drop materially. And when I, you know, I'll, I'll 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 be bold and say, you know, in Q2, so that gives me to July, right? Because then I get the June print in July. I think non-farm payroll will probably go negative.
0: Okay, so that's uh, that's the market. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't
1: mean from there, you know it goes it could I think it could go minus you know a hundred thousand minus two hundred thousand that sort of thing uh, I think we're getting there uh, but I think there's definitely the level of job creation is beginning to uh, materially slow I think what job creation we are seeing is kind of a holdover from people who have been desperately trying to find people Like right? we you know as Brits we saw that as soon as all the tech layoffs started to happen right there's land rover range rover going uh if you've uh, if you've lost a job in the tech space uh we've got one for you um you know maybe they can fix their bloody awful navigation system um you know great car but shitty electronics right
0: and and so with this you know when, when we when, let's say we shift into um, a recession environment Yep. I mean, you know, we've been talking about um, a banking crisis, but really, I, I look at that and think it was actually a, a crisis of asset impairment, which led to issues for banking in the same way we saw asset impairment with the UK pension system. It mm-hmm. feels like private equity, venture capital and mm-hmm. commercial real estate and residential real estate is all an area where we're going to we are we've got asset impairment that's currently hidden because of mark to markets have not come through. And these are the areas where we'll eventually see this slowing down in, you know, the, the the um, property sector is so huge in the US that if it yep. just slows, that's where you get massive layoffs. Do you see that yep. there's this big problem that, that actually the banking crisis is not really the banking crisis that we're looking for? These are not the droids you're looking for. What we're actually seeing there is an indication of something that's going to happen in big areas, in particularly long duration assets which have been hit and are impaired. But we just don't know because we haven't seen them fall over yet because they're not selling us.
1: Yeah, I, I think, look, I think that's... Uh when you see people like BlackRock walk away from deals, right, you know, you know, it's bad, right? When you see, uh, you know, attempts for people to pull out uh, money from uh, commercial real estate pools, right? And they can get six, six, six amount of, of dollars, right? There was, I think it was BlackRock who did that the other day. You know, it, it's, it's, it's bad. And I think to your point, there is a very large hidden uh non-public banking funding pool which is beginning to shrink uh, and to- where the metrics are beginning to tighten uh, quite dramatically look i mean i think if you're you know some of the good guys will will ha- have got you know cash They can call on cash. Um, And this is another thing that people don't realize, right? You know, you get into these private equity deals and it's the gift that keeps taking if it goes wrong, right? Because they keep calling you and saying, oh, we need another drawdown on that program that you uh, signed up for. And you're like, what? (laughs) Right? And they can just keep pulling cash on you for a while. But the problem is, is who owns these things, right? They're owned by... Private endowments, right? I think if you're looking to get your kids into scholarship uh, in college, do it. Try and do it this year. Not, you know, in a couple of years' time, it might be a little tighter because those endowments might not feel quite so wealthy. Um, uh, this, this is all contracting behind the scenes, Roger. And we it's very difficult to get metrics on. Uh, it's very difficult to uh, get a sense on, but we know it's coming in. So, you know, I've the analogy that I've used. Um, is, uh, you know, and I know as a Brit, you'll be a Bond fan, right? So if you, do you remember Goldeneye? We had uh, Alan Cummings was playing this uh, character, Boris, the Russian programmer, who used to kind of do this the whole time, right, with his pen and bloody annoying little shit. So, you know, end of the Bond movie, you get this big explosion, as per usual. Everything's blown apart, and Boris is kind of sitting at the centre of this, and he looks down, and he realises he's alive, right? And he stands up, and he screams... I am invincible and then all of a sudden behind him the liquid nitrogen tanks rupture and the poor guy is turned into a frozen lolly or a popsicle right and I and I think that is unfortunately what is happening I think we are going to see this sort of talk of soft landing no landing is really just a problem of delay that it, and, and obfuscation because we can't see what's going on in large sways of this economy we occasionally get you walk around a corner and you go oh jesus that doesn't smell very good right but you can't look into the room and see how bad it is because it's all off balance sheet and it's all hidden and it's not public but if you look at what is going on and you look at you know this regional banking crisis and i think you know in fairness to the fed they probably averted the, the uh, heart attack but have they cured the underlying disease and i think the answer is is no right we know that a lot of these regional banks have very large exposures to uh cni loans to you know in other words commercial industrial loans to uh real estate to to construction lending and it's a very large proportion of their capital understandably right because that's kind of what the space that you do um, but we also know that we haven 't really seen any losses or impairments yet, and yet when you look at the credit indicators, they would tell you it 's just a function of time that 's coming and now all of a sudden, if we 've linked this we 've created this connection between falling equity prices and deposit flight, which we did with sVB and sovereign bank right if you if you 've done that, and that is the model that we follow all the way along who's to say roger in six months time if we don't get a big super regional bank have to come out and declare big losses on commercial real estate and then the stocks start to run and then the feds having to come in again and backstop this with liquidity right and this all this is why i get worried about this Not the commitment of the Fed to try and address inflation, but the ability of the Fed to balance this financial stability versus inflation or this R double star against this R star. So, yeah, look, I think the credit crunch, as I said, we don't have many post-SVB credit metrics out yet, uh, but the ones that I am looking at don't look good, mate.
0: So basically, they're they're saying that they're tightening. Basically, tightening credit. They're not going to yeah. give it out. They're just not going to. There's just not going to be any liquidity coming from the, the regional banks because they can't. And this is kind of you know it felt like it was going to be an instant death for a few days. Um, I mean, it's, right. with all this, it yeah, could have been. Well, it could have been. Yeah. We could have
1: gone. Dum, 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 dum. Yeah, I mean, it was well, they... just
0: the world of social media. I mean, I remember it was the Wednesday before it happened. There was not a problem. On the Friday, there was a problem. Yeah. And on the Sunday, there was a bailout. It took six yes, months exactly. in two thousand and eight. I mean, God, I well, don't yeah. have time to think, you know. Um, but it feels like that even with these backstops, this is still for a lot of banks death by a thousand cuts because the model's broken and there's no either they've got a loss on their long duration assets which they'll never make back from earnings, or they'll see this drip drip of, of deposits going. So it's kind of a death by a thousand cuts for probably. Yes, that's exactly
1: exactly. I mean, you know, it's the difference between a heart attack and cancer, right? Yeah. One just takes longer than the
0: other, unfortunately. So kind of thinking about this now, I mean, if, if you're so you've got the gold, you're thinking about the seven year, five year, seven year yields should fall relative to the 30 year. You like the, pre- the precious, precious metals rather than industrial precious metals. Yep. We've got a recession. Um, I mean, should people just be holding a higher level of cash at the moment in safe banks if they know what a safe bank is? <laughs> yeah, you know, I,
1: I, I think, look, as I said, you know, there's many of the trades that we've discussed and many of the things that uh, right here, right now are quite complicated for a an individual investor to do right the nice nasty correction in the relative trade the steepness of the curve all those sorts of things which the pros can kind of take advantage of it's quite difficult for retail to do i think in this situation holding some sort of cash uh, balance is actually you know a very very attractive uh, option yeah i really do
0: because you really off...
1: want to try and buy off the lows and that's what you know, we try and do in macro insiders is like you know now buy it, right?
0: Brilliant. And just just to finish it off, can just changing one more direction because I know this is one of the areas where you have yes. some of the biggest battles, but on inflation, yes. Um one thing that I find fascinating about the inflation debate, because I think, you know, we, we've been talking about recession, which is something which might be here and now or in the next few months. So this is a trading thing. But then yep. we've got to yep. set our framework for the next five years. What I found fascinating listening to this, the arguments is that, uh, as you often say, um, we're both right. It's a matter of timing when you have the arguments. But it feels like there's there's actually a very plausible um, structural disinflation or deflationary story because of de- demographics and uh, and technology. And I've listened to yourself. and I've listened to Luke Groman and others who are actually saying, because of that, it's the policy response we have to have that is the reason we're going to get inflation. So in fact, what we have is a structural disinflationary environment that almost lends itself to a policy response that will always and everywhere have those inflationary spikes. Do you think that's fair as, as what we might actually be going into? So actually, the disinflationary environment is going to be the cause of the inflationary spikes.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I um, yes, I think that's that's sort of true. I mean, I think... It, you know, it goes along a little beyond uh, in uh, the immediate policy response because, look, something that Raoul and I completely agree on is you study the macro to figure out when the policy response is to then trade the market. Right? So, you, so what drives markets is policy response these days, not necessarily the macro, but the macro drives the policy response. So you have to follow that. So. I, I Look, we've been in a structurally disinflationary environment since common agricultural land was enclosed uh, into uh, fields uh, in the UK uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. If you go back, the Bank of England's done some work, and they look at disinflationary trends since the 1400s, right? So, you know, the, the progress of productivity, Roger, is broadly speaking disinflationary. Um, there is no question that AI is going to be part of that, right? We could be looking at something, you know, what worries me is, you know, you had the sort of Luddite rebellion uh, in in British history, in the Industrial Revolution, where they were up, rising up against, you know, the spinning Jenny and all this sort of thing, coming into a very specific narrow section of the economy uh, and displacing jobs. And now AI is going to do that over a very broad sway. So it is structurally... Uh, highly disinflationary. Uh, the question is is though you have these periods throughout history where you get these sort of on average seven years but can extend longer of sort of counter trend rallies in inflation and to some degree they're kind of cathartic because you need them to reset the value of debt in real terms but they kind of happen and so when I look at this world I think we're Potentially in one of those I think we're potentially in one of those 1960s 70s kind of period a more extended one a lot a lot will depend on What happens to the dollar? Okay, and 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 that's just sort of my my sense and that dollar will depend on how that you know to go back to that thought how policymakers will respond right so like I said earlier Let's imagine, it's end of 23, we're running into election in 24, the election's a year away, and we're in a deep recession. What do policymakers do in the US? Do the Republicans sit back and go, there you go, Joe, right wear that one into the election? Or do they feel pressure from their constituency to start spending money to help out industry or private equity or whatever it is, okay, which has got itself into trouble. And in that situation, do you do you give another fiscal stimulus right, at a time when the Fed will have addressed some of the inflation, Roger? But if you go back and look at history, inflation generally just doesn't melt away. Right? It's actually quite that insidious little thing that kind of retreats into the cupboard And then as soon as you give it an opportunity again, it comes bursting out and we get, you know, we've had wave, I think wave one of the inflation wave was the Trump wave. I think this is wave two. Do we get wave three, particularly if the dollar's falling? So, you know, it doesn't mean that it, it goes on forever. It'll it'll crest when we get our Volcker. Like when we get our Volcker someone comes in and really is prepared to put the screws to it. But typically that happens when society is so sick and tired of inflation that they are prepared to put up with the pain. I just don't think we're there yet.
0: And so we, we, we're presumably going from a sort of we got used to a cap being two to three percent to the floor probably being three, four percent, something like that.
1: Yeah, I, I would think so. And then maybe in the next round, it's four or five, right? I mean, that's, that was the pattern of the 1960s. It's like, ah, you know, I, I just worry that we're a very soft society now, right? We are not prepared to take any pain. And if you're not prepared to take any pain, then wringing this inflation out of the system is going to be bloody hard because the politicians are always going to be pandering to get re-elected. And that means spending money or, you know, pressurizing the Fed not to be too aggressive. And ultimately, I don't think the Fed, I think the Fed is genuine in its desire. I think Jay Powell is genuine in his desire when he says it's the best thing if we kind of take the pain now, if we wring this out of the system, it gives us the flexibility. But he may not be able to politically deliver that.
0: So do you think that he, if that's the case, then he has to try and get that done now, this year, so that next year he can take his foot off the pedal?
1: I mean, I've heard that explicitly. I mean, uh, from my policy friends who are still sort of, you know, in that policy space, that explicitly one of the reasons that they went aggressively early was because they knew the pressure was going to be uh material in fact my colleague harry melandry uh, on real vision did that interview with uh, tom Hernig, the uh, the ex-fed uh, governor and he said look you know my concern is you know what happens when unemployment is six right and they're still trying to figure out whether to cut rates or you know how much to cut rates but they're still looking at that kind of you know inflation genie still in the bottle right this is where things become much much more difficult so far better To try and go aggressive hard which is what they've done while the economy looks you know and the politicians can't get on their case then right because the economy still has got momentum but i am invincible right doesn't happen
0: (laughs) so but it sounds like i mean you know everybody should be we should all be kind of glued to our screens now because we're coming into that it feels like we're coming into the, the the business end of this cycle then in terms of we're getting the, uh, the ISMs moving, the unemployment moving, things are probably going to happen this year rather than get pushed on into next year. Great. Well, I think
1: so. I, I think if you, yeah, if you put a gun to my head, I would say we're well, either in the recession this quarter or it's next quarter. Um, I, think, I don't think that's a big revelation to the bond market. What may be the revelation is, and I said, I think, is quite how bad it gets. And that's why I'm looking at this credit stuff and it's beginning to worry me. And then what happens to the dollar in that situation? Because that will then determine whether we can nicely transition, Roger, into a, yeah, we get a nasty downturn, it looks a bit ugly, but then the dollar starts to fall and that's broadly reflationary. Or God forbid, not my base case, but God forbid the dollar rallies again into the recession in that risk-off move, because then that's what we refer to as the napalm run, right? You're, You're... risk the denominator of risk assets is rising in value and it's undermining the value of those assets as they're falling anyway so it's like that uh, you know so we'll see mm. not my base yes. case, but, you know <laughs> not
0: your base case but yeah so well it's all good uh, well maybe it's not all good but thank you for that great rundown um an exciting couple of courses ahead of us by the sounds of it uh, i always say i hope not the tin hat type but you never know uh, get
1: out the gold. No, I mean, I think just great, great trading environment. Oh, I mean, it's a really good.
0: Opportunities. I it's said great this to load. be
1: back, mate. It's yeah. great to be back before I'm too old yeah. to do this again. You know, next time we get this sort of macro environment, I may be sitting and dribbling on my shoulder. Right. But right here, right now, I still feel spry enough that I can take advantage
0: of it. And, and the great thing is, you know, everyone again, as we talked to it earlier, people think of recessions as being binary, but there's loads and loads of opportunities during most recessions, if people Correct. just find the right the right direction. Great. Well, thank you very, very much for your time. Yeah. It's been great to hear you and uh, and your views. And uh, pleasure, Roger. we will be watching them with intent. Lovely. Catch you later.
1: Thanks, mate. Cheers. <laughs>